The Lifestylist, episode 52, featuring Daniel Vitalis. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. You're about to listen to part two of two in an interview with our guest, Daniel Vitalis. Don't forget to go back and check part one released earlier this week. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Luke Story, and I'm about to take you on a trip deep into the mind of our guest, Daniel Vitalis, in this two-part, two-hour epic interview all about the effects of domestication on humankind. And it's really fun to have Daniel back on the show because he was actually my very first guest, and I'm just such a huge fan of his work and his podcast. I've been on his show, Rewild Yourself, a couple times. So this was kind of a celebration of me being 50-something episodes in and him really giving me the confidence and the encouragement to start my own show after being a fan of his. So it was a super fun interview. We go deep into a lot of different weird subjects. I mean, it gets really crazy, especially in the second half, because Daniel kind of calls me out on a few of my beliefs and things like that. And it's pretty fun. I think this is a pretty mind and consciousness expanding interview or conversation as it were. So some of the things we talk about in this episode are as follows. How desks ruin your body and how sitting in chairs makes you spineless. And then we go into sort of the spiritual piece, which is domesticated spirituality and how religions are all part of the human control system that came along with agriculture. And then finally, Daniel challenges my love of yoga and suggests that this tradition might be part of an elitist control structure and not quite the utopian heritage that we commonly believe it to be. In fact, he goes so far as to say, and I guess there's some documentation on this, uh, including a movie that he mentions, a documentary, that the CIA actually brought the Eastern gurus here in the 60s to America to undermine our culture by creating a bunch of self-obsessed spiritual seekers guilty as charged. So that's a really interesting piece that I'd love for you to hear. If you have anything to weigh in on that, hit me up on Instagram or my Facebook or email me through the site. Because when he said that, you can hear like the floor kind of drop out from under me. And I'm like, uh, what? And then Daniel talks about how animism is actually the original spiritual human religion of pre-domesticated humans. So there was actually kind of a worldwide human religion that we just came across naturally before we became domesticated. Then we go into the phony aspects of the New Age movement and how silly that can be. And then finally, of course, because we don't want to leave you hanging on a negative note and leave you feeling this hopeless, domesticated human, Daniel offers some great tips on how to rewild your sexuality, your movement, your diet, and of course, your home. So this is a really fact-filled, powerful episode, and there's a lot of great information for you to gain. So sit back, buckle your seatbelts, and get ready to have your mind blown. Today's show is brought to you by my good friends, including our guest Daniel Vitalis over at SirThrival.com. I've been using SirThrival products for many, many years because they work, they're potent, they're strong, they're the real deal, their commitment to quality and excellence is unparalleled. And I'm not just saying that because Daniel's my homie. 
If his stuff was crap, I would not be promoting it. So some of the things that I use from Sir Thrival on a regular basis, like almost daily basis, all of these things would be the colostrum powder for immunity and workout recovery. I put that in hot and cold drinks all the time. The pine pollen extract for hormone balance and boosting testosterone. If you're a guy and you get on this for about two weeks, you're going to notice, I mean, literally, you're going to notice something happening downstairs real quick. It's insanely powerful stuff, okay? It really does increase your testosterone because that's basically what it is. And there's a lot of research to support that. And then what's really awesome is a newer product they have, the bone broth protein. And the bone broth protein is a powder. So it's like a protein powder. It comes in all these different flavors from like savory to vanilla to chocolate. And I use that in hot and cold drinks. It's really cool because you can put it in like a bulletproof coffee or a hot elixir and it just dissolves and it's loaded with amino acids and really easily digestible protein, helps to heal your gut lining. It's really good for your skin, hair, and nails. But mainly it's just so much cheaper and easy than dealing with liquid bone broth. Like making that stuff yourself is cute for about five minutes, but honestly it gets old running that crock pot for 48 hours. And to buy it online is really, really expensive. And the shipping is really expensive because it's so heavy. So I like a hot bone broth here and there. I go get mine at Belcampo locally all the time. I love it. But this is an easier way to get that into your body on a regular basis. Another thing that I really dig that you might want to check out is the elk antler uh, extract that increases or speeds up recovery time, increases endurance, promotes lean muscle mass. It just turns you into kind of a beast. And there's a lot of research on that one too. It's an adaptogenic herb. And then of course, kind of their flagship products, which would be the chaga and reishi medicinal mushroom extracts. So you asked, what's some of the stuff that I take? Where do I get it? I get emails all the time. I get hit up on social media. What's the best supplements? What do you do for this and that? Uh, I don't give a lot of recommendations there. And if I do, it's got to be something that I personally use and something that I believe in. And Sir Thrival meets that criteria. But the real good news is that I've got you a sweet hookup. You know how we do it when someone sponsors the show or is a guest on the show. I always make sure to get you guys a sweet discount. In this case, the discount is 10% and you can get that by using the code LUKE2016. So go to surthrival.com, like survive and thrive, surthrival.com. Use the code LUKE2016 and save 10% off your order. Check out a couple of my recommendations. You will not be disappointed. Daniel Vitalis is the host of one of my favorite podcasts called Rewild Yourself. He's also the founder of Sir Thrival, a premier line of food-based nutritional supplements. He's a writer, public speaker, entrepreneur, and lifestyle pioneer in the sphere of human health, personal development, and strategic living. He's especially interested in the meeting place of ancestral health and lifestyle design. He's best known for relentlessly flouting taboo and exposing the forces of domestication wherever they lurk in his lucid and provocative interviews, essays, videos, and dynamic on-stage presentations. Daniel can be seen in the hit documentary film Hungry for Change and has been featured in the Huffington Post, Marie Claire magazine, as well as countless other interviews and media appearances. When not traveling, he lives rurally, very rurally, in the Pine State of Maine. So I want to cover a couple other ways that the domestication has affected us, and we might as well just stay on the physical track, and that is something I've really been working with. I interviewed our mutual friend Katie Bowman the other day. Oh, yeah? Um, How's yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, it's amazing, dude. Amazing. The only She's problem so cool. with it is we only had an hour, and I was like, ah! Yeah. You know, it was just so much to cover, but what about our feet? You know, I've experienced a lot of issues with my ankles and my toes are all bent up from being like a cool rock and roll kid wearing leather beetle boots around that are the exact opposite shape of my goddamn feet 
trying to be Mr. Cool and make my feet look smaller because I was lanky and dorky in high school. But my feet are having a lot of problems now, and I'm, I'm working through undoing that. So, and the same thing with my eyes from all this close-up vision, back problems from sitting at a desk in school and then growing up and sitting at a desk at home, working in factories. Like, what other ways has domestication affected our bodies? I mean, not just physical health, but like, you know, the mechanical part of our bodies. Yeah, mechanically, right. Well, I think, you know, clothing is technically is a tool, right? So we're animals and the items that we man, you know, we're not the only tool users. So we see, you know, more than just chimps, we see other animals too, using tools in some way. And we manufacture all kinds of tools. We're a tool using ape and clothing and shoes, right? They are tools. But for most people, that tools becomes of shoes have become so integrated that they're almost like a part-time prosthesis. Because a lot of people never are going to leave the house without shoes on. They remind me a little bit of like a Victorian era kind of corset for the foot. So imagine that era where like I would say kind of the peak of human domestication is that that like Victorian era, right? Like the absurdity of domestication when like the French are wearing like the guys are wearing lipstick and big powdery wigs and puffy blouses and the women are wearing those dresses with big like metallic you know, like frameworks underneath them. I mean, the you know, table legs all have to be covered so people don't get turned on by table legs. I mean, this is a, a crazy time. And the idea of like a woman having to squeeze herself into a laced up corset now looks a bit like misogynistic, right? Or the idea of Chinese foot binding looks a little bit, you know, misogynistic. But what we do to our feet every day by lacing them against a um, and strapping them against essentially a board, it's a bit like when you have a, a vehicular accident and the paramedics show up or the EMT show up and they strap you to a backboard to immobilize your spine. This is what we're doing to our foot. So we slide our foot every day into like this rigid shanked shoe and then we lace it tight enough to immobilize the foot with this belief that somehow this is superior to the mechanical foot that we were endowed with at birth, like as if that foot is somehow inferior to something that Nike can produce in a sweatshop in Vietnam, right? I mean, this makes no sense. The initial idea of being shod was to protect the bottom of the foot, but eventually over time it became this like techie idea that your shoes are somehow an improvement mechanically. What do we know now? We know that your foot atrophies in a shoe, and most people what they think of as their bare feet are actually more like when you take a, a limb out of a cast than it is like their natural organ right? So you take anybody who's had a cast, you come out of that cast and you look at your arm and you look at your leg and it's pale and it's clammy and the hairs look all kind of funny and it's lost muscle mass. Well, that's most people's feet. So you could kind of imagine if you created an equivalent for your hand, which would not be a glove, but would be not even a mitten because a mitten has a thumb at least. Most people's shoes don't even have a thumb. So it wouldn't even be a mitten. Slip a sock over your hand and then lace your hand to some kind of hard sole object and wear that all day, every day, every year, year after year, for decades and decades and decades. And what do you think your hand's strength, dexterity, and utility would be like? So diminished and so atrophied and you wouldn't even know that you lacked a capability. So, you know, I've been doing the barefoot thing long enough now that I do things routinely that people look at me like, oh my God, how'd you just do that? And to me, it's like, I know I'm not even close to what I could potentially develop 
because the formative years of my life were spent strapped into the backboard of shoes. But I know that you can restore a lot of that and you can get functionality in your foot. You can grip the earth. You can sense texture. You can commune with landscapes. You can prevent injuries, prevent falls, prevent slips. You can sustain falls without injury that people just can't imagine because their feet are so weak. Add to that that the average shoe lifts the heel up which changes your whole relationship to planet Earth and to gravity by tilting your pelvis forward, forcing you then to recline backwards, which changes your spine over time. Now you're looking at like you actually are wearing a peg leg under your calcaneus bone. So you've got a calcaneal peg on, we call a high heel. This is a prosthesis. And it's as obnoxious as a Lady Gaga meat dress, but we're used to it. So we don't recognize it as basically like a captain hook peg leg that you strap to the bottom of your foot every day going like, aren't I sexy? Dude, that's These so are Jimmy shoes. The, <laughs> the high heel thing is crazy. Cause you, as you know, I worked in the fashion industry for a long time, like 17 years. And, uh, so I don't know, I just fell into it as something I did. And part of high fashion, especially for women usually involves some sort of a high heel, like flats are like what you wear when you're just chilling and most women I know, like living in Hollywood, it's very visually oriented here, right? It's all about your image and how you look. And that's how people market themselves and make a living in Hollywood. But me personally, like, I think most guys I know, they're like, see a woman in some high heels, like, oh, it's so hot. Like, I love those heels. Like, when I see a woman in heels, I feel sorry for them. I'm like bummed out mm. that they're hurting themselves like that. I really am. I mean, it, I guess there's a certain aesthetic there and, you know, it lifts the butt up. And Well, yeah, that, the aesthetic I mean, is that it makes her look sexually available. Right. I mean, this right. is the thing. When, I, when a woman is doing the, like, feminist thing and she's wearing heels, it's so offensive to women, in my opinion. I think that's offensive to women because what you're doing is designed to, one, make you not be able to run away. This has been attractive to men all through history, right? You can't run. You can't walk properly. It forces your hips to sway. That's the same reason the Chinese started foot binding women. That was the practice of breaking their feet as children, wrapping the toe bones underneath the foot, wrapping those up day after day so that the feet could not grow properly or not form properly. They aesthetically liked the way the hips swayed and the woman couldn't really walk right. Now what we do is we do that with a shoe so we don't have to break the foot. It also raises the ass up and opens it from the back. So it makes her look like, you know, when you see chimps and you see that big swelling on the, the rear side of the females and it's like, what the hell is that? Like bad case of hemorrhoids? What is that? That drives male chimpanzees crazy, crazy. That's a sexually receptive female. We're creating that effect by kyphotically tilting the pelvis of women, exposing the rear from the back the way that many animals make love, making her look sexually receptive from the rear. And then when she walks, she sways back and forth like a fish hook. So, I mean, that's what that is about. It's not, I mean, what else is it? And I, when women are like, well, it makes you more powerful. It makes you taller. It's like, eh, I don't think that's what it's really about. Or you could just wear stilts. So if you were a woman and you didn't want to objectify yourself sexually and be seen as just a sexual target and actually, you know, a living human being, then you probably would not, would not want to wear heels because it's sort of like yeah. encouraging that point of view, right? 
I mean, that's how I see the right, whole right, issue. Yeah. To me, it's not empowering to women at all. It's like, just in the same way that a three-legged sack race wouldn't be empowering to me. It'd be like, right. I can't run. I'm immobilized by this. There's this great photograph. I, I don't know if I still have it, but this photograph of um, one of the stairwells of the Twin Towers uh, on 9-11, 2001. And it is just littered with high heels that had to be abandoned so the women could get out of that building. Because they just, imagine you're going down the fl those flights of stairs in your high heels, like just not functional when the building's about to collapse, right? You got to doff those shoes. You have to unshod yourself. Um, so that's like one layer of it. But I think another layer too is like looking at the end of those shoes. It's like, and this goes for guys too, but it's more, more prominent as you get into higher fashion shoes. Um, like Italian shoes are going to be this way for guys, but it's super common and prominent in female shoes. It's like, ladies, the front end of your high heel is the opposite shape of your foot. I mean, that is an acute angle and your foot is an obtuse angle. And so not only are you altering your body's posture in gravity, but you're also forcing your toes into this tiny little wedge in a shape that they're not. How is that empowering? Because to me, that seems a bit like wearing the corset. And the thing, back to the corset, it's like somebody who wants to wear a corset, like I'm all for that. I don't have any issue with that. I don't have an issue if somebody wants to wear high heels. But like the idea that it's empowering or that it's not sexualizing in some way seems ridiculous. And it's just not good for your body. I mean, I think we can all see that. So, I mean, I don't mind if people want to do these things. I think everybody should have the right to do these things. But like there's this social pressure to do certain things that are completely absurd. Yeah, I would be super bummed if in order for me to like fit in, I had to wear high heels. I mean, just like the physical pain involved. Now, dude, it's gotten to where I don't even, you know, I mean, I still work in the fashion industry to a degree with my school. And if I'm doing that stuff, I have to kind of look presentable. I can't show up in like Vibram five finger hippie shoes. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I have to kind of play, play the role a bit, but, um, Good school of style. <laughs> yeah. I can't, I can't stand wearing like my old, really cool John Barbados, like black Oxford. They like kill my feet now because I've been wearing, you know, minimal footwear so much and just actually running around barefoot as much as possible. It's like to go backwards now into those shoes that I had been domesticated into and gotten used to is like, oh my God, this is torture. I wear them out to a party for a couple hours. I'm like, I can't wait to get in my, literally in the car. I just take them off. Like I only you wear know, them. You know, I think, you know, I had the, one of the sales directors for North America of Vibram five fingers on my show, right? And we're talking about it. And I was saying, you know, I've worn Vibram five fingers since the year they came out now. So it's been like a decade of that. And before that I was wearing these tabby shoes that do have like a bit more like a mitten. So I had like a big toe pocket and the rest of my four toes were in one. So I've, my feet have gotten much wider than they used to be. You know, when people are like, oh, I, I need a, I need a D size cause I have wide feet. It's like, I don't even regular shoes don't even fail my feet now. You know, my feet are fundamentally altered. So like I can't go back to, I mean, I could over time atrophy my foot, but it'd be like asking me to give up my hands. Yeah, you know, yeah, I do things with my foot. I open doorknobs with my foot. Like <laughs> I use my feet. I use my feet, man. So like I don't want to give up a capability, yeah. you know. And I think that that's what that would be like. But I understand that situation you're talking about. And I'll say men have other pressures that are different. Like as you get it, like where if you're going to bring a woman to, well, I should say if you're going to bring a woman. I mean, women go on their own volition too. But like anytime I've gone somewhere with a woman that's going to be like a a wedding or some kind of an event like that where there's pressure to dress up, 
there's a huge pressure to wear heels, like you were kind of were saying before. But for the guy, there's a huge pressure to wear a necktie. And I look at a necktie and I go, that's a leash, dude. You have a dog <laughs> leash around your neck. You can make it all silk and put little, you know, flamingos on it, but it's a dog leash, dude. You got you got a collar on. And, you know, we've joked about it before, but this idea of like blue collar and white collar, it's like like it's kind of like that Democrat Republican thing. Like I'm supposed to pick. I don't know what category am I? Am I blue collar or white? It's like I don't wear a fucking collar, dude. I'm not a dog. I don't wear a leash. I don't know what you're talking about. And I ain't wearing those shoes either. Sorry. But so I think that, you know, and like if you have a boss that runs your life, you know, like in an office or something, you got to wear that tie up nice and tight, right? You cover your Adam's apple. If you want to get all, I know you like going down the Kundalini route. It's like you're covering up that throat chakra with a knot. Your throat chakra in those esoteric traditions is your ability to express your truth. I'll tie a little knot around that and put my little collar on here and then I'll just be subservient to the man. I can't get with that. Total craziness, dude. So yeah, I'm definitely not wearing ties whenever possible, but it's funny too. It's just like culturally... I think just, again, coming from the fashion industry, there are times when I want to put on a tie and rather than feeling weaker and constricted and having my throat chakra blocked off, like I feel badass. And even like when I wear really cool leather boots or something, I'm like, yeah, I feel really good, but not for very long. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> And it's kind of like, too, I mean, you look at a really well-trained dog, you know, I was just hunting in North Carolina with hounds and uh, these aren't dogs like you keep in your house. These are hunting dogs, you know, they live a really different lifestyle. You open the back of the truck and you open their cage and they're excited to jump into it. Right, right, yeah. I mean, you know, you go, oh, I'm excited to wear my tie. I'm excited to wear my heels. Oh. Like animals get excited about kibble. Yeah. You know, we've yeah. learned and we've been trained and conditioned. It's not the tie. You know what I mean? That could have been anything. You could have gotten conditioned to feel that way when you tie a piece of string around your finger. It's conditioning. It's operant conditioning. We associate the tie with going to an exclusive event. We're VIP. We're sexy GQ badass. All those things we've had been conditioned. It's dog training, dude. It's just dog training. Yeah, it is. It is all a figment of the imagination. So in addition to the feet, what about being brought up to sit at these torture chambers known as desks in school and then <laughs> and then moving in like I'm sitting at a desk now I don't you're probably standing um but you know I've been working on like my workstation making it convertible where I stand sit move around and do that as much as possible but I feel that sitting has really really hurt my body over the course of my life yeah I mean we've seen in the last couple of years these articles I mean I think everybody listening's heard it where you know, and, and if they heard your show with Katie or any of my shows with Katie, you know, this idea that sitting's new smoking. The interesting thing to me is just looking at, in particular, European furniture, which is the furniture that we've taken on too, culturally coming out of Europe, that's built on 90 degree angles, like with this assumption that your body is not a biological thing, but more like a robotic thing, right? And so I think we talked about this last time. There's this idea of us as an angel and there's this idea of us as an ape, Right. And these two forces, like imagine you have like one on either shoulder. Right. There's like the party that's like, don't wear the tie. And then you've got this side over here that's like, you know, I should be spiritual and I should be oh, Brian. I should not put my elbows on the table and all that. So there's like these two competing forces. That angelic part of us loves the idea of the chair. It's so civilized and clean. 
but it's like it's a non-natural thing and we have a fully natural biology. We are an ape. We come with a built-in chair. It's called the squat position, the flat foot squat position. But most of us aren't really capable of using it very effectively because our bodies are too atrophied and calcified to be able to get into our squat position. So we've come to rely on – you know another thing that's interesting to me? That word punk, you know, be like, oh, that punk. Well, punk ass, like punk refers to when you get into, I learned this just in the primitive skills world. When you start working with wood, the material inside of a rotted tree that's all soft at the core, that's punk wood. And to say somebody's a punk means that they like have no spine, like at the core of them is soft and worm eaten. Interesting. Right? I what, didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. That's, 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 that makes no sense of, uh, in terms of punk rock because punk rock is like spike leather jackets, tough, you kick people's ass. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> like, it's like I'm rotten to the core. Uh, okay, okay, right, Johnny right, okay. rotten style, right? Okay, cool, I got that. Right, like I'm corrupted. So we also have this kind of idea of being spineless. I, by the way, I like grew up on punk music. I don't, have, I don't mean a negative against punk, but that's what the word means. Um, also like this idea of spinelessness. Well, one of the things is we have a prosthetic spine that we use called the back of a chair. And that prosthesis supports our spine just like our shoes support our feet and just like crutches would support you if you had a broken leg. So we have a, a spine crutch, which means we have weak cores. We're punky to the core. We're spineless because our spines aren't – the core musculature that supports our spine is atrophied from using chairs. Also, our uh, psoas muscle, I would say, you know, if we were butchering you, you know, it'd be your tenderloin, is shortened. Your hip flexors are shortened. Puts a tremendous, because of sitting in chair with your leg up means that this is all shortened out. So everything has been squeezed and you're kind of, I like I always make a joke about people who do spinning classes and cyclists, uh, you know, and, and we have a mutual friend who's a cyclist, right? Who loves riding his bike. I mean, I, you know, I, I joke with friends like, oh, you like to work out in the fetal position. But that's kind of what I see is like the chair is like closer to the fetal position than it is to, <laughs> to standing. You know, we sit in this position all the time. It creates collapse all through our spine. It creates a weak spine. And also what ends up happening is we typically don't take our femur bones into deeper flexion. And so we start to lose range of motion. And particularly, you start to notice that people's ankles, they can't get into the squat position because of a lack of ankle mobility from not doing it. And we then went further than the chair and we created our toilets, which are chairs. And so we've learned to eliminate in that position, which is real bad for us. And because we can't fully eliminate that way for reasons we don't need to get into now, but if you think about it in the past, and again, if you know the 200,000 years of human history and only the last 5% of that being you know, living in this kind of a way that we're living or anything that can even approximate it, the rest of that time, that whole 95% of our evolution, you'd have been squatting once, twice, three times a day to go to the bathroom. You know, not even just for the ability to rest in that position, even if you never squatted to rest, you would have squatted every day to go to the bathroom. But now we don't do that because we have this like, well, I can't get all the way down there. I got to sit in a chair to go poop. So, so what ends up happening is we give up a tremendous amount of capability, human capability. And it's not just, you know, in squatting and it's not just how we go to the bathroom. It's like every aspect of our, of our mobility has been reduced by our clothing, by the kind of structures we build that have 90 
90 degree turns and walls, by the surfaces that we walk on, by the surfaces we sleep on, by the surfaces we drive around on, the chair that we sit in when we drive. We have reduced our mobility so much. Just the clothing that people wear that means they can't even open their legs completely. I mean, the average person is wearing clothes where, like oftentimes people are wearing clothes where they can't even step wide in their pants. Or women are wearing skirts that are such that they don't want to open their legs wide because the skirt would become too uncomfortably revealing for them. So we start to squeeze in. Man, in the fashion world, I got to say, every time I go, let's say I go to Soho or something, I'm going to like go try on clothes in like a high fashion place, whatever. It's like, whose shoulders are these things made for? It just like, it's like, I got to suck my shoulders in. I'm not a big guy. I can't, it's like, oh, I have no shoulder mobility. If I lift my arms up, the shirt's going to come up to my belly button. That's like the average. <laughs> if I went to your house right now, I stepped out on the street and I stopped every friggin' hipster that walks by and I tell him to put his arms in the air, you know, his shirt's going up to his belly button. So he learns not to put his arms up. He slowly restricts his mobility. Well, you and know, over what? time. What's that? What's well? What's funny about the the fashion thing and and fitted clothing is that, I mean, from the the stylist perspective, and that's you know it's what we teach is that you're you want tailored clothing and fitted clothing because you can show the silhouette of the human form, right? So with a guy, yeah. you know, you want to create that V shape. This is this is going back. As long as he into, doesn't move, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the woman, you want to create that hourglass, even if it's not there. And so like as a stylist, what you do is you use um, geometry, sort of different shapes and emphasizing, um, you know, more fabric here, more structure here, less structure there to create that. But the better the clothing looks on someone, the less healthy it is and the less, yeah, less you know, the less you're able, to, yeah, the less functional, less you're able to move. And it's something like my brother that, you know, Cody, we're always talking about this, like, we, you know, we like to dress cool. We live in Hollywood. Like, you know, we, we got our little style going on, but it's like the cooler you look, the worse you feel. And so yeah. I walk around now in sort of like designer workout slash yoga clothes on most days because I just, I can't stand the feeling of being locked in like you're describing, but you still want like... You don't want to be wearing like parachute pants and you know, like a giant Dude, o- oversized three X T shirt so that you can move. I mean, you look like you know yeah, a bum. For me, um, there's something about like Fruit of the Loom sweatpants. Okay, like like I'm talking. I shouldn't I shouldn't reveal this. I'm gonna get some hate mail about this, but I'm gonna reveal it. I go to Walmart for one thing: sweatpants. I'll go in. I'll buy like ten pairs of size large Fruit of the Loom sweatpants. And I'll burn through those over the course of a year and then I'll go replace them, right? Because the second I get home, whatever I'm wearing gets doffed and I get into sweatpants. No organic, no high-end, no fashion sweatpant, no, none of that. Those, you know, they try to make them like sweatpants that dress up a little more for the gym or whatever. It's not the same. Those ones that are like genies around the ankles, you know, yeah. they, they have that little <laughs> yeah. elastic at the ankle and the elastic at the waist. I cut out the ripcord string thing. The mobility that I get from that, I've never worn anything else that gives me that mobility except nakedness. Now my girlfriend does it too. So we get, and she's always like, you know, she always wants to be like dressed nicely for me, whatever. And I, you know, she'll always be like, babe, it's tonight's sweatpant night. Like kind of hoping I'm going to say like, yeah. And I'm always like, yeah, like baby, why are you asking me that? Like get out of whatever you're wearing. Like that's for out there in here. <laughs> it's got to be free. And I want to go back to what you said about silhouettes because that's a really key piece. We appreciate those two shapes you described because biologically, they represent health, correct? 
We see the hourglass shape, we think fertility. We see that V shape, we think strength. And those are built in just like uh, certain types of facial structures for us represent health. And they trigger something deeper than our, in our conscious mind. It's in our subconscious and unconscious mind that we read those things. Domestication has led to degeneration of our structure in the same way that we see with dogs. So, you know, your the Shina Inu you described earlier, which does come from a hunting breed. That was originally a hunting breed. But when you look at that, it's kind of a distortion of the shape of the wolf, right? It's no longer shaped like the wolf. So we're like that. We're no longer shaped like we were meant to be shaped. So we have a lot of theatrics that we use to get ourselves to appear to be shaped like we would have been shaped in the wild. We go through extreme lengths with our dentition, right? The fact that your average person in the United States with a nice smile has had that smile surgically altered with braces in order to get it that way to cover up the fact that there's been dental degeneration in their genetic line. So we alter it to make ourselves look more wild. One of the things we know about human wildness is that in intact, undamaged, unbroken lineages of indigenous people, we see near perfect dentition without cavities, straight teeth, without impacted teeth, the way that we're used to. We know that's healthier, so we try to alter our face to get back to that. We try to alter the human silhouette to look how we should look. And that's the thing about our culture is that when civilizations, every civilization before us, we talked about this in our first show, has collapsed. And we are in late stages of our civilization. So our civilization has to find a way to reboot itself to avoid collapsing. Otherwise, it will collapse on itself due to the destruction of its land base, watersheds, air, industry, et cetera. We're in like late stages now. And whenever you get to the late stages of a civilization, the upper echelon, the privileged folks, the elite folks in that get so far out with their fashion. It gets so obnoxious and it starts to be this um, game of trying to appear like something that you're actually not. And we're in this place of trying to look healthier than we are, which is why people spray tan themselves and tooth bleach themselves and get braces and wear high heels and try to get clothes that make them look V-shaped or hourglass shaped when they're not. Because rather than doing what it takes to be that and the inability to look at ourselves and go, oh man, like the chihuahua no longer resembles the gray wolf, we no longer resemble what our genetic potential is or was, we rather just kind of alter all that surgically, cosmetically, with clothing and fabric and disguise and illusion. I'm not saying everybody needs to conform to any kind of specific standard. I'm saying everybody's trying to conform to some kind of standard. Most people trying to conform to some kind of standard that they know subconsciously is an expression of genetic health. Not just health like, I get enough vitamin C. I mean like genetic health of a species. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting speaking about the, you know, symmetry of um, like facial structure and having straight teeth and all these things and having the hourglass or having that V and that we're trying to sort of cheat that with clothing rather than doing the work. I'm thinking, yeah, I would much rather just buy a blazer with shoulder pads than go like lift weights. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like totally. But the other part of it is that we're, I think, often. I think, man, I don't know if women are so visually oriented typically. Well, maybe they are. You know, I don't hear like a lot of men complaining about being like objectified sexually or something. But it's like I have this inherent like male guilt if I prefer a woman with straight teeth or with nice hair or a symmetrical face and that's not cross-eyed or whatever. 
And it's like, I'll even feel like, God, I sh- I'm so shallow. Like, what a dick I am. Like, why can't I just love someone for who they yeah. are and be attracted to everyone, you know? But it's like, it's in my DNA, is it not, that I, you know, going back, at least evolutionarily speaking, that I want to seek a mate that's going to produce healthy offspring. So straight teeth is not something that I'm controlling that I'm attracted to, for example. Is that... I th- Yeah, I love- and I'm going to say, all right, I, I want to... Uh... Let me first say I spent most of my 20s, late teens actually, into my 20s working with uh, kids with special needs in a respite care position. I did that for over a decade, um, worked with special needs kids of lots of them too, of varying severity of all kinds of physical deformities, psychological issues, actual brain issues, kids who needed feeding tubes, kids who were missing limbs, kids who had kidney failure at age three. I mean, I've seen a lot of crazy stuff and I work with a lot of kids like that. Earlier, I was talking about how for indigenous people in unbroken lineages living their traditional life way, that it's not a utopia, but it's a lot better, I think, than what we have today. However, there are some things that when you bring up that those people's did are a little shocking to people. And one is that if you have a deformed baby, most cases you're killing that baby. Whoa. I mean, I'm just going to put that out there. You know, you're not bringing that child all the way to adulthood. And I, you know, of course not. It's going to be a draw on the community. And having worked with a lot of those kids and having deep relationships to this day with some of those kind of kids... That's a thing to say because I have personal connection, but also understand that what we're doing to ourselves genetically right now, the thing is, is that because of the political correctness, we can't talk about this openly, right? I'm having, I'm already like tiptoeing my ass around this conversation a lot, right? It's uncomfortable. I'm sure people are listening to this being like, he's cringing about what I might say next. We spend too much time thinking, in my opinion, about individuals and not enough time at all talking about our species. If we cared about our species, we wouldn't be just doing this genetically modified food experiment on ourselves without like at least segregating it off and being like, well, we're going to try it over the course of 6,000 years in a very limited way. We just unlabel it, put it all into the food supply. We wouldn't have glyphosate in our environment. Right, We wouldn't allow companies like Monsanto to produce their wares and feed them to people. We wouldn't fill the environment with what we know in our homes with what we know are endocrine-disrupting hormones that are destroying us biologically. We wouldn't do that. But we don't care about our species. We care about right now how I look and about everybody gets a pat on the back all the time because you're amazing and everybody wins. The problem is long-term, you damage the genetics of your species itself. And this is one of the problems with civilizations and when they wipe out indigenous peoples is that indigenous peoples have intact genetics that stretch way, way back, and we do not. Essentially, when those lineages go extinct, we're left holding the bag of our mixed-up, messed-up genetics that are hyper-domesticated and degenerating, are breaking down. There's this thing of like you just said, like this guilt, like because it's been, again, conditioned into you. Do you think like a lion feels bad for a deformed lion cub that it kills? Like doesn't feel bad because it's not been conditioned to, but you've been conditioned to. And this is really difficult stuff to talk about. But ultimately, like I don't think there's anything weird about that, right? It's like you are attracted to what you're attracted to because that worked for 200,000 years. And the idea that we're going to just change all that in one or two generations – 
and be like, oh, no, none of that matters anymore. Oh, how, how with the old, in with the new. It's like, whoa, <laughs> we've been doing it this long and you got this much of it. It's an experiment. And I think that it's going to have really, really long-term negative repercussions. And we can see that because you can, this is another thing people never talk about, but you can look at the generation of kids being born right now and the generation of kids who are in elementary school right now and the generation of kids that are in high school right now. And you look at those kids and you're like, damn, those kids look sick. You got your occasional kid with like good genetics, but like a lot of people look unhealthy already, malnourished, bad dentition, all kinds of deformities that would have stood out more to us in the past that are now kind of normalized. And I'm not excluding myself from this. I'm like right there with everybody. So I'm not trying to, you know, sound like some kind of um, bigot about this. It's like I'm a domesticated person too. What we've done to ourselves we don't even know long-term what the repercussions are going to be on our species, but our ability to survive and thrive into deep future is questionable because we are not like the other wild animals that still have intact lineages. We are like domesticated dogs or domesticated bananas, which have like a questionable future. Wow. So anyway, that, that said, like, I don't think you need to feel <laughs> yeah. guilty about that. Yeah, I, I, I don't. It's just something that I've looked at. And, I'm, you know, it's like, I don't know. Does an ape feel bad because he likes the female ape with the big swollen butt like you were talking about? It's like, it's just kind of the way they are. Uh, it's just interesting. I like to consider both perspectives, you know, about these things. It's like, yeah, we're, we have a spiritual nature and we're inside this animal body, but the animal body's still there. So how much can you override that through your intention and your positivity and compassion for other creatures and stuff? I mean, you still have to contend with the fact that you're in a meat suit mm-hmm. as high as your consciousness might get and your meat suit has certain desires and preferences and that doesn't make you a bad person, uh, I guess, unless you let no, those. But we also are are struggling to understand our spirituality, man. I mean, we are like, <laughs> yeah, no shit. we're like, like when you're a teenager trying to understand your sexuality, right? I mean, how long is like, it takes decades and decades to even start to get a handle on how your sexuality even works, to observe your own patterns, to even know what you like. You know, I can remember in my mid to late 20s, a girl asking me like, what do you even like sexually? And being like, I don't really even know, I guess. You know, like it takes a long time to really get a handle on that. And we kind of, we talked about before, like with things like circumcision and all the other multitude of things that have created sexual aberration in us so that we're so confused about who we are sexually. Well, we're like that spiritually. You know, if you think about the past, and I don't mean the past 6,000 years, but I mean that deep human past, you would have had a spiritual tradition that you would have been raised in, that your parents were raised in, that their parents were raised in, that your community was steeped in, not saying it was the right path, but saying you wouldn't have been confused. And where we are right now is we have access to a mishmash of all of these spiritual traditions, and we're trying to figure out a morality, and we're trying to figure out a way to walk in the world. We have a sense of our spiritualness. And we have a sense of compassion and we have a sense of how it should be expressed. But I think a lot of it's getting expressed in a really confused way that ultimately undermines, again, our species. And I don't see how it is spiritual at all to undermine the long-term survival of your species for an individual. Like that doesn't seem spiritual, but that's being promoted as spiritual. I just really love that ultra spiritual dude. What's his name? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, the redheaded guy? Yeah, man, yeah because yeah. he just like, He just is constantly like poking at all this new age spirituality that's so absorbed the minds of our culture at present that absolutely absurd things are being promoted as being somehow obvious spiritual truths when they flake apart when you start to pick at them. 
And yeah. some of them are like this kind of idea that it's more spiritual to be compassionate and loving and all of these things towards things that ultimately undermine our long-term success. It's like having a business that's losing money, right? And like, like I'm going to keep investing in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that's true though, because it, it, when you think about it from the uh, viewpoint of domestication, all of the native peoples that kind of had their own cool thing going that at least seemed to work for them, right? Um, I guess unless it was like cannibalism or something, but you know, they all kind of were doing their thing. Then the imperialist uh, Europeans come in and go after the resources and enslave those people and domesticate those people and try to impart their religious system on them. And so my generation, I guess, you know, the the few generations around ours now are going like, ah, I either didn't have a religious practice or belief system in my family inherently, or had one and it hurt me. Like you hear so many people yeah. describe because themselves. Because it was, it was a domesticated one. Yeah, yeah. Like recovering Catholics or, you know, the right, controlling right. Jewish mother, whatever your, you know, issue was. Uh, I don't know many people. I have a couple friends, actually, two Jewish friends that are totally down with their religion and their family. They all seem very healthy and happy. It works for them. But most people I know are like, yeah, screw my family's religion. I'm going to find my own thing at yoga, you know, or whatever. And it's like, I've been to India searching. I mean, I'm tr- I've been trying to find an answer my whole life. And I've come to find, you know, some things that work for me, many of which I talk about on the show. But I, I agree that we are all sort of looking for something that's been missing and uh, and are easily misled. And it's so convenient to look to the East. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I love how, yeah. like... It's like far away exotic people had it figured out in their civilization. It's like, no, their civilization was a lot like ours. It was inherently unsustainable. It was based on a caste system that had slaves at the bottom and elite Brahmin at the top. And all those spiritual traditions come from those. I mean, whatever. We, yeah. The point <laughs> yeah. is like we love looking over there and thinking they have it. Yeah. We want what they had spiritually. And they're looking at us going, we want your jeans. We want your high heels. We want your phone. You know, like – they want our physical lifestyle. We want what we what they perceive our physical lifestyle to be. Because if you ever notice when you see people, let's say India is a great example. You see people over here from India. I don't mean people who've lived here for a period of time and gotten acclimated to the culture, but people who come from India trying to be all cool in the way that looks like an 80s movie. You ever yeah. see that? Like, yeah, yeah. Like, and they'll be like, Levi jeans, you know, and you're like, wearing sunglasses and acting all like they saw in movies before they came here. And then we are doing that with our thing, right? Like we're trying to act like what we assume that that culture was like during the heyday of its, you know, Hindu yogic practices in a kind of an offensive, culturally appropriating caricature (laughs) of what we assume they were like. And they're culturally appropriating our movies. And it's like this weird both are like just completely out of their minds. Like we have turned to the East for something that I don't think, honestly, I think they don't actually have. And I say that having gone to the East looking for it. And I say that having done a lot of those things, I think we're going to look back on this little phase of our culture and just be like, oh man, remember when yoga was the thing? Like, I know that there's a ton of value there, but what we're doing is again, this is human history and this worked for 195,000 years of it. And then we're going, oh, this isn't working now. Let's go back 5,000 years. That was another slave system, just like this one. Just they didn't have as many distractions, so it looks more intact to us. But it's actually not the real thing. The real thing took place all those years called animism. It's the natural human religion shared around the world ubiquitously. It's not found in yoga. It's not found in Confucianism. It's not found in Taoism. It's not found in all those places. Those are all the religions. Again, I know I'm projecting all this, but those are all the religions of civilization. And civilization, all it's ever done is gobble up 
the earth, destroy the land base, destroy the water base, pollute its air, enslave its people, enslave other species, domesticate them. The people of India were domesticators, just like us. They were domesticators. And what we're doing, it's like by doing yoga, what we're doing is kind of like if you try to emulate the lifestyle of the ultra rich 1% elite billionaires. Because what you're doing is trying to emulate the lifestyle of the Brahmin class who had these high elite practices. That wasn't most of the people of India, right? It's like when people think about like medieval times and they think about the courtroom in the castle. It's like, no, 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 that was like, that was a tiny fraction. Most of the people were peasants wearing like sackcloth, working fields to pay duties in their fiefdom to those people who live. It wasn't like everybody got to walk around like in castles. That was the ultra rich elite that we don't relate to, you know what I mean? Like that we can't relate to. That's who was doing all this yoga over there. There's a Brahmin class, you know? That's interesting. Well, being someone who's benefited a lot from not only yoga, but all kinds of things, I've never, I guess, never really personally been sort of indoctrinated into the whole lifestyle or the whole system or the culture of it. It's more like I've kind of cherry-picked different practices and principles throughout sure. a lot of different things and applied them. So I read a book on Kabbalah, I go, oh, cool, like I really like this concept that, um, you know, the ego is the desire to receive for the self alone. And I put that in my lexicon, you know, that's like part of my thing now is anything I'm doing motivated for just me or the highest good. And in Kundalini Yoga, there's things that you do with your breathing and with your movement and chanting that seem to get me really high and open my heart up and kind of open my mind up. But I've never been like a joiner at the same time. So it's like, I think there's sort of these almost hidden principles in all of these different teachings and practices that one can sort of extract and build their own model, which is kind of what I've done in everything that but, I do. But you gotta, you gotta know, like I know you enough, Luke, to know yeah. you gotta know that the, the CIA brought all those gurus here in the 1960s to create... Oh, no way! What? I, don't, I have no idea. This is totally news to me. Come on. I, I feel consider myself pretty educated on conspiracies, but I, to I, I totally don't know this. Oh, dude. Well, you should look. You should look into a little okay. bit of this. Okay. Check out. You still haven't watched the Century of Self by PBS on huh? that three-part documentary. No. All right, I'm writing that down. Literally All right. right now. Well, what that documentary is about is how marketeers, propagandists, corporations, and the United States government all kind of colluded to create a narcissistic consumer state. PBS did this documentary. It's incredible what it reveals because it's such a mainstream organization. But toward the end, what you see is the bringing in of all of these ideas from the East out of context to create narcissistic people. So all those things you just described about the ego and all that stuff, it's all self-obsession. It's all obsession with the self. None of it creates strong communities. None of it creates connection to ecology. None of it restores any of what we actually need to get ourselves out of this predicament. It just gets a whole bunch of people diddling themselves at home on their little like, you know, four by two foot, you know, sticky plastic mat talking about like themselves <laughs> from the perspective of how they're not talking oh about because that's ego. So I'm not talking about myself. I'm just talking about myself. And this was all brought here with the intention of creating disconnected people. So it's like what we have is like, again, I've talked about this before, but we were giant language groups that you could break down into tribes, that you could break down into foraging groups. And that was like the smallest unit was this 35 to 50 people living together with a shared fate. 
civilization cleaves that down into family groups, into smaller nuclear families. And now what it is, is the obsession with the individual. Everything is about the individual. So the generation today doesn't care in the same way about family at all or community or any of that. It's everybody's their own individual separated from everybody else. These are the most controllable people that have ever existed because they're not networked to each other and they're not networked to ecology. So we're all like separated away with this obsession about our ego and trying to control our ego. It's a way of getting it. I think it's a very big distraction. So are there truths? Like there are so many truths that I've taken out of yoga that ha have fundamentally altered how I see the world. And I think are incredibly valuable. But I also see how it's a great tool for people to use to just become incredibly self-obsessed, even under the guise of being less self-obsessed. So you got all these people who are working on their ego. What are they really working on? It's just a self-obsession. Yeah. Trying to back to the self. You that's, know? A, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I can see that. The same thing goes with like your physical health too. So maybe that's your spiritual health, but it's like, I know I've become so self-absorbed into like, what what am I making to eat? And what am I drinking in the herbs and this and that? And it's like the whole biohacking thing, like so much of what we do, I think to improve ourselves is just inherently a self-centered venture because that's yeah, where we're and, looking and, for and the I, answer. And I, it's I interesting. hate to take the, I don't want to like put the blame on every person, all of us, it's like, this was ultimately perpetrated upon us in certain ways, very intentionally. Domestication is not an accidental thing that happens. And let's say the last 50 years of it have been high intensity domestication perpetrated by governments and corporations in collusion. And it's public record stuff. I know I'm not trying to, I'm not saying like lizard people from, you know, planet X. I'm just talking about here on earth, for the purpose of extracting taxation and wealth out of us in labor, we have been ultra domesticated and made self-obsessed because we can never get out of it as individuals. Wow. And we can't, right? We're always going to be like, oh, that's not my fight. I'm not part of that. Oh. <laughs> right? So we can never, oh, like, like, that would be a great religion to have cows have. Right. Right? It'd be great. Right. Because, well, it was a sacred cow, because they'll never figure out how to get out of the domestication situation because they're going to be too busy contemplating their navels done on purpose. Wow. Wow. Well, as I promised earlier when we started the show, because we're coming, we're getting toward the end here. Uh, I mean, I think we need another hour. We have to do like a part. This is going to be a two-parter, I think. We're going to have to do a part three because we just laid out like a somewhat bleak picture. And I don't know that we can, I mean, you know, to a degree, I, I think waking up sometimes is painful. I mean, who likes to be like shaken when they're taking a nap, you know? Um, but I, that's the purpose of talking to people like you is like, wow, let's rethink all of this and change perspective. Can you, and I don't even know if this is possible, but can you give us a brief summary, like maybe, you know, five basic lifestyle choices or something that someone could make to kind of at least point themselves in the right direction of personal, what is it called? Sovereign sovereignty? Yeah. That's sovereignty. Sovereignty. Yeah, and yes. Sovereignty just means you are the, you're the ruler over your own life. And that's right. been the rule all through history. So yeah, you know, I will. And I'll, I'll just say first that in wild humans, intact peoples that have a lineage that stretches back that are still hunter gatherers or were when we look at them in the literature from the past and try to understand how they live, we see that they have this sovereign egalitarian 
Lifeway. Every person is their own ruler. They don't have that, like the chief is not the ruler over everybody. The chief is the guy who just leads because the people like him, but he's not allowed to tell people what to do. It doesn't work like that the way we're used to. We're so used to being subservient. So the first step is just going like, I'm going to reclaim myself. I'm no longer like, going to be told what to do. I don't need a guru. I don't need a leader. I can take control of my own life. I can take control of my own health. I can take control of my own education. I can take control of my own livelihood, all that. I don't want to be a domesticated animal anymore. I'm going to be somebody's pet anymore. I don't want to eat kibble anymore, right? Then we can start to rewild specific aspects of our life. I think the biggest place, the easiest place to start is to rewild your diet. And that's a real simple thing. I've so much work on this. And of course, people can check out my podcast or my magazine at danavitalis.com. But rewilding your diet looks like starting to reconstruct. There's Unfortunately, there's a lot of caricatures of it now, like the paleo diet, which is like, oh, it's based off it's, that's like a Flintstone diet. It's like based off a caricature of the past, but it's not really. So we need like an actual rewilded diet. For me, that path has led to where I hunt and gather now, um, as one of my primary ways of getting my food, not exclusively, but a lot of my food comes that way. In fact, right now, all my protein comes that way. That took me many years to get to that place. So, you know, I teach a lot about the spectrum of rewilding your diet, starting at the supermarket, working your way backward, rewilding your water. We talked about spring water. Well, that's why for me, it's going direct to the source, gathering my own waters, rewilding the water in my diet. You can rewild the air around you because the air that you breathe, unfortunately, is filled with industrial pollution. So we can rewild that, get more fresh air. We can rewild our light exposure by being out in the sun and making sure we're getting enough sun. We can rewild our sexuality by simply not giving our sexuality to another person. doesn't mean you can't have a relationship and doesn't mean you can't have a monogamous relationship. It means that the other person doesn't have a leash on your sexuality, that you share your sexuality with your partner or partners, not that it is controlled or owned by somebody else, right? That's something that we've been doing for a long time and I think is really harmful to us and we don't see it in our wild past. Uh, we can rewild our movement. So we talked a little bit about that and getting to where our bodies move freely again, like a human animal instead of like a human automatron. So there's all these like aspects of lifestyle that we can rewild. We can rewild our sleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we want to be looking at our lives and kind of, I always think of it's like, if it's the same with a dog, it's like, how do I get this dog's lifestyle to be more like a wolf lifestyle? You can ask yourself that. How do you get your lifestyle to be more like a hunter-gatherer? You will never get there. This isn't one of those things, this movements where it's like, oh, I'm a 90% rewilder. So it's not like that. Like nobody gets there. So we're just all on a spectrum working toward our own kind of rewilded salvation, I guess. You know, like trying to like find our core, wild, undomesticated self again. But it's like a path. And you got like a lot of time to explore it. Um, but probably the place to start is with what you eat, like what you build your body out of. Because the, the fundamental truth of our human kind of slavery when it comes to food is that we are starving. And when you're starving, you don't have the energy to really make moves. You don't have the ability to think clearly. You don't have the ability to actually begin to take on this lifestyle. So we got to get strong again. And that starts with our food and starts at examining how domesticated our diet really is. Um, imagine again, you're a chihuahua, you wake up one day and you realize, oh my God, I'm supposed to eat deer, but I've been eating kibble. 
that's what kind of situation we're in. So I think it's a great place to start. Awesome. That's a great summary and actionable. And I want to just encourage our listeners who, uh, many of you, of course, will be familiar with Daniel's work and his podcast and website. Those of you that aren't, if these topics have intrigued you, like get on his podcast. It's one, it's one of the only ones I listen to. I think I actually lost a, a whole bunch of people. I think I lost <laughs> <my> <laughs> From hunting? Um, but you're on hiatus right now, but still there's a backlog of it's. It's one of the only ones I listen to, I think, just about every single episode. No, oh, no, no shit. And your thank site you. is just like chock full of plenty of recommendations and um, more thought on this. So you've taught me so much. You just kind of tripped me out with some of the spiritual stuff. I'm going to have to digest that because I'm like, going, wait, wait, what? Uh, really good. I love when that happens. I get to rethink Century a few of Self, PBS. Yeah, I'm no, on. Dude, I literally, I have the note right here. It's on camera for you not YouTubers. Gonna be, you will not. I can't wait to talk to you after. You're not going to believe it. I'm going to watch it. I'll watch it this week. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you've taught me and our listeners so much. Who have been three teachers or teachings that you've benefited from? From. Um, I, Daniel Quinn, uh, who wrote the book Ishmael and the story of B and a few others, um, massively influenced me in thinking about rewilding, implanted that in my head early on with that book Ishmael. That, that just landed really deep for me. Um, Stephen Herod Buhner, um, the herbalist and writer, uh, I think he'll be remembered more as a writer than an herbalist, taught me how to, I don't want to say I didn't know how to communicate from my heart, but gave me permission to communicate from the heart. And then my friend, Arthur Haynes, who uh, I have on the show all the time, uh, who's a forging teacher for me here, who's taught how to be more scientific, you know, and balance out what I learned from Stephen, which was to come from the heart. And so um, th those are three people. I mean, I could list a hundred, but but oh, those three great. people and all of them all have amazing books, really worth everybody's time. That's excellent. We'll put those in the show notes along with links to your website and podcast and all of that. So if you're listening to this, you want to get to lukestory.com, sign up for my newsletter so you don't have to try to remember any of this amazing resources that we drop on you. I will email them to you once a week. Uh, where do you want us to go to find you? DanielVitalis.com and obviously my name and social media will bring you to my stuff. I think everybody, uh, uh, you're about to hear a beep. When you hear the beep, leave uh, your name <laughs> and number and a brief message explaining why you called. Um, you know where to find me, uh, social media, Daniel Vitalis. Yeah, you're a good Instagram follow too. You've got some crazy adventures out there, which is fun to watch. Cool, I'm always man. like, God, I, I want to be out there. I'm like walking around the concrete here in the city going, man, I would love <laughs> to be on a lake like ice fishing right now. It looks so cool. Well, dude, really good to talk to you. I think um, on these podcasts, we get to talk longer and more in-depth than we ever have time for yeah. in personal life. So thank you so much for, again, for supporting my mission early on and continuing to do so. And uh, thanks for coming back on. Love what you do, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Peace. I think a congratulations is in order here. You just made it through part two of this epic interview with my guest, Daniel Vitalis. This was one of my all-time favorite interviews. I had to split it into two parts because it was a couple hours long. Obviously, if you just listened to part two and never heard part one, you're going to want to go back and check that out to tie a nice bow on that conversation. I'd also like to remind you to tune in next Tuesday, March 21st for an interview with my friend and guest, Taro Isakaupala from Four Sigmatic Foods, another great great expert on herbalism and medicinal mushrooms, much like Daniel. So check that out next Tuesday. And don't forget that you can go to surthrival.com and save 10% using the code Luke2016. As I said earlier, this is one of my favorite websites to get my own products, herbal supplements, superfoods, etc. Now you can save some cash over there 
at surfthrival.com using the code LUKE2016 to save 10%. I'd also love for you to share this episode with a friend. It's great to spread the word if you know someone into health, healing, spirituality, all the different things that we talk about. One of the most powerful things you can do to support the show is just tell a buddy about it. All right, I'll see you next Tuesday with Tarot on the 21st.